All right, welcome back to the Iron Curtain, where we bring you a class-conscious analysis of historic and current events which are pertinent to the international working-class movement. If you want to help this show grow and expand, you can check out our Patreon account, which is listed in the show description. And if you want to reach out to us, you can hit up our Twitter at Iron Curtain Pod or our subreddit at r slash the Iron Curtain. We'd love to chat with you. And we're also available on Spotify and YouTube. Okay, today, um, from the Iron Curtain crew, we have me, my name is FBK, and we're also joined by Tactical Spork. And as a very special guest, we're joined by Comrade Natalie, who's going to speak to us about the DPRK today. How are you doing so far, Comrade Natalie? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I um, I just wanted to premise that this wasn't like a, uh, a pre-planned uh, appearance. Like, this is all just <laughs> kind of off the top of my head. And uh, this is probably the first time since... Uh, October 2018, and I've I've been on a podcast. I was on Prol's Pod once, and that was the end of my my podcast appearances. So, right. Well, that that's amazing. Um, that's actually really cool. I mean, uh, the first time I heard you was on Prol's The Roundtable, and that was quite an informative episode that changed my mind about a lot of things. So, um, we're honored to have you on here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I actually a lot of people even today people are, tell me I I found you through Pearl's Potters even though Pearl's Pot is you know gone now but thank you I appreciate Rest that yeah yeah absolutely and uh, as you said it is an open discussion here we're gonna just talk about the DPRK and a lot that been has been going on with it um, but yeah first let's hear a little bit about uh, Comrade Natalie so um, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, maybe what kind of organizations you're involved with how you got into this kind of work um, yeah that'd be great. Sure. So, um, I really didn't know anything about the DPRK before 2011, I would say. Um, growing up in America, you don't, I don't think we even touched about it in any of my history courses. Um, especially not anything about, uh, war crimes or any of the horrors of the war. But, um, it was December 2011 and, um, that was when Kim Jong-il, uh, passed. And I remember, cause I was, by then I was already super into politics. I was watching the news every single day. I was a fucking nerd. And, um, I remember seeing all these images on, you know, CNN or MSNBC of the, um, people crying in the streets, you know, the, um, people crying over the of Kim Jong-il. I, and during his funeral, and I remember all these stories about, um, you know, all all these tears are fake. You know, all these people they're just they're just um, robotic actors. They're all you know right behind the camera is a gun pointing at them to make them cry. If you know they they have I remember hearing stories about how their tear quotas and all the late night pundits making fun of all these people, and it just it rubbed me really the wrong way. And I wanted to try and better understand what they were, what they were crying, why they were crying, you know, who Kim Jong Il was, because we had heard, I, you know, uh, I think the most exposure I'd had to Kim Jong Il growing up in America was, um, oh, it's some, it's some movie about puppets. Um, oh, Team America, Team America, oh, Team America, yeah, and. Um, yeah, and so I, the more that I, it took years, but um, I eventually, I found, you know, the DPRK's um, version of events, and they're, 
their websites and things like that. And um, then I started reading their books and their their literature and their uh, history. Um, and it all just, it, it was nothing like I had ever heard in, in, in public American schools. And it just really opened my eyes like, wow, um, everything I'm being told about my government's actions in Korea has been like a total lie. Everything that I've been told has been this totally sensationalized, you know, um, media driven narrative of these people being crazy, of their leaders being maniacal, like self-obsessed um, dictators that mm. starve their people and they just live in these lavish mansions. And I, I couldn't, I mean, nothing that, that, that I was told about the DPRK was um, like how it really was. And even the people who not necessarily were supportive of the DPRK were, were calling out a lot of these, these lies and exaggerations that really portray, you know, Koreans as, as partly even, you know, being human. Um, some people have this legitimately have this vision of, you know, the DPRK being this dark, you know, gray, desolate hellhole where people live in straw and mud huts and next to big mansions of, you know, Kim Jong-il or something. So, but this was, this was dwelling in me for years. So that was fine. I, I knew that, I knew that at that time that my views were, you know, super out there and for American, you know, mainstream politics and, you know, to suggest that there was anything otherwise from the U.S. narrative is, it, you know, puts a target on your back, obviously. And, but then in 2017, um, when Trump was in power now, and it was, it was, um, I think it was summer 2017 when the nuclear threats started being exchanged between um, uh, the United States and the, and the DPRK. The DPRK are saying that they would just retaliate to any um, U.S. provocations because they, they have a strict you know, no first, first strike policy. And once President Trump was using words like fire and fury, you know, I, like many others, felt wow, we could be, you know, just a few months away from, you know, a nuclear war, you know, um, the first in our generation. And uh, that's what originally spurred me to um, get involved. I originally wanted to get involved in the KFA, um, the Korean Friendship Association, um, but um, there was just, there. Uh, I didn't establish a lot of communication, you know, sometimes emails can go unanswered, etc. But uh, so that's when I started um, what is what is today the um, I started my Twitter um, at, at later votes. I started doing that um, for about a year. And then a year later, I started what is what is today the uh, Pact to Solidarity uh, Alliance, which is my own minor little advocacy organization that I'm trying, we're trying to work on um, here and there, um, which is at uh, defendkorea.com. Um, and then in December, 2018, I, um, I, that's when I was found by the Korean Friendship Association and, um, I joined their U S branch and, um, I was eventually made, uh, most people probably know me as, um, general secretary of the Korean Friendship Association USA. Um, and I just recently, uh, part of that position so I can. Uh, free up some of my time for other pro DPRK activities. That's fascinating. I'm curious. So what kind of activities um, and sort of 
things is your association involved with? Like, what kind of stuff do they do on a daily basis? Um, yeah. So one of the things we do is that we publish um, DPRK published contents and materials and audiovisual content. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to one of the DPRK sites, but some of them are like coded the greatest and like uh, up to our like modern like like two, 2020 standards. Um, and a lot of their sites, unfortunately, don't let you link to certain materials or, you know, it's, I don't know how to explain. It. I don't know anything about coding websites, but it's not ideal, some of them. So we do that. And um, we, uh, basically, I what I think is that um, we need to create better understanding. We need to create more, you know, cultural exchange to really get anywhere. I don't think that um, conflict or um, pressure, especially not sanctions, are really going to change anything in this situation and that the only the only path forward the only viable path forward for for all sides in this in this um this issue including americans the the one that safeguards the most people is uh building peace building um better understanding between peoples especially one that we really know absolutely like uh, nothing we're not i'm not doing anything special that's a, that's the thing that people um really just don't know anything about the dprk and so almost any information that you give them will be new information yeah so so basically what you're describing is um around 2011 you started to discover that there was a lot of um just inconsistencies the way us in the west here view the dprk and um there's a lot of um you know almost orientalist kind of um uh, vibes coming from a lot of people's assessments. They think it's, they're just like a hive mind kind of mentality, um, stuff like that. And it leads to this kind of weird situation where, um, you know, even you see um, progressive liberal types um, aren't really for any type of like diplomacy for the DPRK. Like we saw, um, you know, Trump get a lot of backlash when he was um, even just wanting to set up like talks with Kim Jong-un. Um, which was a historic moment because um, U.S. president has never met with the leader of the DPRK. But, yeah, you saw the liberal side really kind of, um, you know, go against him on that front. I'm just curious what your reaction to that that whole situation was. Yeah, the media seriously sabotaged the entire um, the talks between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. It came to a uh, a, a a climax at Han- Hanoi um, when the two leaders met. And I remember... Watching the news coverage at night because you know I I was I was covering the entire thing from start to finish from both the leaders arriving to them leaving and um like in Vietnam and um the, the news coverage all of it whether it was CNN Fox it was the president is going to sell out our country to the communists the president is going you know he's going to make some stupid deal that's going to give uh the, the kim regime whatever they want just so he can have a photo op uh, so it's successful that you can call it a success and he did exactly what all of them told him he should do which was walk away from walk away from a great deal and let's let's remember what the deal was um as far as i know it was the exchange of they would close down their nuclear facility at nongbyon which is uh, at the very center of their nuclear program that would have, you know, it would have, they, they've said it would have probably crippled their nuclear program entirely because they refer to it as, you know, the central nerve. Um, 
And in exchange, they would have gotten only uh, sanctions, relaxations that affect the civilian economy. Um, not the ones that, you know, the individual sanctions or, you know, that they put on, in, you know, people within the government. Just the ones that are affecting, you know, the day-to-day lives of the people. And even that was um, just totally unacceptable. The United States has been emphasizing from the very start its uh, policy of total and uh, total, complete, irreversible uh, denuclearization. And it's just from the very beginning, it's just clearing. We're not. This isn't. There's (laughs) there. There's no way that this is this can happen. the DPRK has said that they will, they have, they would have no um, reason to have their nuclear weapons if they, you know, if there was not a hostile policy from the United States. And they've said that if the United States withdraws its with, uh, with <laughs> withdraws its hostile policy towards them, uh, they would gladly give up their nuclear weapons and not have any use for them um, because they're, you know, expensive to build, expensive to maintain. Uh, they're not good for anybody and um you're right about all the the um liberal voices even liberal voices here in the united states that um really don't seem to be open to um carving out a peace with korea and this is a a phenomenon that um they've really taken on from the south korean far right because in south korea even even the the centrists like support hey we need to work with the dprk we need to like start opening roads and like railways and you know more travel it is exclusively the uh the far right and the forces behind park and um and the you know um military dictatorships you know um that uh preceded you know the south's liberalization um that have really been pushing hey we don't need to work with the dprk we need to they they like in there they really want to go to war with the dprk um because they they see it as you know their their country um but overwhelming like it it makes me so angry because i see all these stories here in the united states whenever i read about reunification and it and it talks about oh the you know it's all that's just something that old people want it's not you know, all the young people they hate the DPRK. They don't. They don't give a shit about reunification. They just care about you know K-pop and you know whatever the new celebrity is up to. But it plus found that almost eighty percent of percent have uh, said that they need to achieve reunification and they support closer ties with, with the DPRK and that they see the DPRK as a partner and a friend, not as you know an enemy. And um, people really need to understand that that Korean reunification is not really a, a contentious issue. We um, like between the the center and the the left and the far left. It's just these like neo Nazis who like wave um, Israeli and American flags down the streets of Seoul that like are their their you know are so called you know friends or the ones who like wave like um, banners outside the White House that that call on president trump to nuke you know pyongyang instead of negotiate i mean it's yeah i could go on forever about um just it's yeah but you're right it is um it's very strange that so many of the so-called liberal and especially even progressive voices are just so they're either just towing the same line as the u.s government or they're 
giving some watered down line of like, oh well, yeah, we can maybe we can do a peace treaty, but anything beyond that symbolic gesture, eh. like they don't want to talk about getting the fucking troops out, ending the fucking sanctions, um, paying reparations for the millions of people that we slaughtered and the the untold you know trillions worth of dollars of infrastructure and history that was destroyed by our our bombers and our troops and our tanks and our you know yeah but that's uh i'll leave it at that yeah i mean the u.s has a long history of its its centrist mainstream policies being equivalent to the far-right policies of other countries um you especially saw this with the ussr the u.s and canada would take in x uh, ukrainian ss soldiers and use them in their propaganda wars against the soviet union uh, and those became the standard views of a lot of americans of what the soviet union was like um so i can see a, a lot of parallels there i was wondering about the um the sanctions regime against the dprk uh you mentioned that um the u.s was using the sanctions against the civilian population as sort of a bargaining chip um this might be a bit of a technical question but i was wondering um what the impact of U.S. sanctions have been on the Korean population as a whole? Like, what what kind what kind of effects would an average Korean person see? Um, maybe like things that are withdrawn from them or something like that due to those sanctions. Um, yeah. So, um, part of the, uh, the way that sanctions work is beyond just like the specific um, things that are that are blocked is um, it, it really targets a lot of it targets exports and. So, for instance, the DPRK is capped in how much um, coal it's allowed to export um, because coal is one of their main exports um, that brings in billions and billions of dollars. And um, obviously, when you don't have, you know, exports, you're not you're not bringing in hard currency. Um, it's harder to have the materials, you know, to run all your factories. And so you're going to probably have even less exports by then. And um, I mean, a uh, part of it, uh, part of the sanctions targets, you know, for instance, like fertilizers and um, uh, gasoline. So for instance, the United States imports something like 20, 21 million barrels of oil a day or uses 21 million barrels of oil a day. <clears throat> but the DPRK is only allowed to import, I think something like half a million barrels every single year. Um, and that's obviously like, especially in a mountainous country, you need a lot of gasoline to like power irrigation. Um, um, so that's one of the biggest ways that they they target um, the uh, their agriculture is through not only sanctions on you know fertilizer and oil, but also they can't import um, you know machinery. Um, like they like they couldn't you know import a tractor if they wanted to. Also, the sanctions, you know, target um, their healthcare industry. Like, for instance, you can't import a uh, an X-ray machine or an MRI, so that children's hospitals, you know, aren't allowed to. They have to. Um, they've started. That's why they've started recently. Um, even Kim Jong Un went to want a super modern uh, medical appliances factory, so that they can just make their own because they can't bring any of that in. Yeah, you mentioned like. Um them because of the sanctions having to take this um, self-reliant kind of approach and um, 
yeah, obviously we know like China, they've had kind of an opposite approach. It's like, we should open up, we'll, we'll play the game, like the global market game and, um, you know, do our best. But the DPRK, they're obviously, um, I don't know how you want to describe it, but they're, um, because of the country, the way it's designed, they had to take on this self-reliant kind of, um, mentality, um, how, how does that, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, how does that work? I know they, they probably run into a lot of things they can't get. Um, there's probably a lot of hurdles there, but um, w- when did they start doing this um, self-reliance approach? I know it really kind of ramped up under Kim Jong-un, if I'm not wrong, um, but how has that been going? Um, so, um, Juche is pretty synonymous with uh, self-reliant at this point. It's, you know, mm-hmm. um, as most people uh, will basically understand, you know, self-reliant um, economy, um, self, def- uh, you know, relying on yourself for defense and a you know, politics. Um, and so that's been kind of, um, I think that's been policy. That's been like the state, like the state's position for a long while, but definitely, um, it was, it was developed more, it was more thoroughly analyzed and developed by, you know, Kim Jong-il. And it's definitely been put into fuller play under, um, Kim Jong-un. We're seeing a lot of the, a lot of the material foundations for the realization of, you know, um, you know, total self-reliance being, you know, put down like, um, for instance, just recently Kim Jong-un, um, after, um, rumors of, um, him, him dying, the most recent, recent round of rumors, um, he, it was his event, his attendance at a, um, a fertilizer factory that, that, um, made the media, you know, uh, do a, um, an apology tour um saying that they were wrong and um yeah so uh, part of it is material foundation for self fertilizer factory they're modernizing a lot of their mind um they're building you know for instance uh i mean uh, i could the list could go on and on like uh notebook factories you know plastics factories um i mean everything from you know notebooks to uh their own their own trolleys and buses and subway cars to um i mean they have all these different food stuff factories that are you know making all these um new products that you that look on standard with with even south korean products so um, I think that kind of Kim Jong-il really had the foresight to know that he would have to deal with the success of U.S. administrations past the Clinton years, who, um, I mean, in the 90s, they did the agreed framework, which was um, all, the sanctions, all the sanctions and restrictions were off the DPRK. The DPRK um, led in, um, inspectors from the IAEA um, to its nuclear facilities, and they oversaw the dismantlement of their nuclear facilities. And in return... Um, the the sanctions were dropped, and uh, the United States agreed that they would construct two light water um, pro- proliferation proof um, reactors for the DPRK, but um, for nuclear energy, so they could they could because you know I mean I mean people always bring up the electricity issue. I mean, good luck fucking powering your cities. I mean, if you don't have any fucking oil, but. Um, uh, but those reactors were never constructed because um, the GOP took over Congress in 2000 um, and uh, or 2002, and they uh, or no, no, it was it was 
and then when they took it over in 95 no they had it they had the gop had the house in uh 2000 they wouldn't fund the the agreement so that they couldn't find a contractor for the the reactors but um you know kim jong-il i think he had the foresight to know that you know the united states especially the bush administration couldn't be you know trusted in any of its agreements and i mean anyone who thinks that the bush administration wouldn't have invaded the dprk if they hadn't had you know developed nuclear weapons i mean i think it's it's totally um ludicrous sure i had a question kind of dovetailing off of that time period so um i know that there is a lot of um, confusion and rumors and exaggerations regarding, uh, I think, what's called the arduous march in the DPRK, the, the, the 90s, where there was a food shortage and things like that, um, with a lot of confusion as to why that happened, and uh, even people going so far as to say that uh, they did it intentionally or something like that, which obviously, you know, ridiculous, but... Um, I was wondering if maybe you could go into maybe a little bit of that and kind of um, the reasons behind it, the factors that influenced it and stuff like that, and the real extent of the damage. Uh, sure. Um, so obviously this occurred like after um, the Soviet Union had collapsed. So suddenly the DPRK's main, you know, training partner is, you know, gone. Um the you know they can't they don't they they have they have less money you know um they can't run as many factories they can't produce as many exports and the united states is blocking them from importing um oil so you know you know almost overnight their you know their their food supply is just like um is decimated for a time um one of the things that I, I hate that it's not brought up is that the United States, for several of the years that the DPRK was undergoing this this famine, they denied that it was happening. They said that the D DPRK was lying about the severity of the famine, that it was just a ploy by the DPRK government to get a free you know UN handout. Um, and it was only until like 1997, at the very peak of the famine, that... They started to accept. Okay, maybe, maybe they're 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 they could be not slightly fibbing. Maybe maybe there's a, some sort of food issue, and it was only then that you know uh, a lot more food aid started flowing. Um, yeah, that's definitely a new one. Normally, um, you know, w with a famine in a socialist country, I mean, you see the West kind of run with it and be like, oh, look how terrible they are. But exactly, they the want to be the heroes and everything, yeah. right? Um. But yeah, um, I mean, there are different estimates on how many people, um, you know, perished. Yeah, you know, I've seen um, upwards of, uh, I've seen some like crazy estimates, like you know, five million, and then I've seen you know, very. I've seen. I think um, lower estimates are around two, uh, you know, five hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, something around that. But. I mean, with any of these things, I mean, it just very people put out whatever they want to. So it's hard to really decipher the the truth as to, you know, what things were. Because, I mean, even the DPRK sources don't, like, particularly like to, like, talk about it. I mean, it's not a good period of their history. I think, like, there's definitely a lot of, like, they're still, they're still angry over, like, what the United States has done to their country. Definitely. And they like to focus on, you know, happier things is what what I get. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I was also wondering, um, I know 
the DPRK has had sort of a complicated relationship with uh, China, especially in the past few years, but also with other socialist countries like Vietnam, Laos, Cuba, um, and other countries. So I was wondering um, what kind of level of cooperation the DPRK has with um, countries like like the ones I just listed and like what kind of solidarity efforts that they've um, been putting out in the past few years? Um, uh, definitely the DPRK. Uh, I mean, uh, people, okay. <laughs> people have differing opinions on this and um, people will like interpret like me saying this is like me, you know, endorsing China. I, I'm not, I don't talk about China that much. Um, Okay, so I can tell you that the DPRK and China are definitely um, close allies and good friends. Um, I mean, even back from, obviously, people, you know, the Korean War, um, I mean, um, they, uh, one of the things, one of the myths about the DPRK is like, oh, you know, they tell people, um, nobody helped them in the war, nobody ever assisted them, it's just, you know, Kim Il-sung single-handedly pulled out his, you know, his blaster and just, you know, wiped out the Americans. Um, but, you know, they have countless um, memorials and monuments and um, martyrs, cemeteries to the Chinese, you know, martyrs and you know, people, the volunteers. And um, even even Kim Jong-un and um, Kim Jong-un, Kim Il-sung before them, um, uh, have you know visited been pictured at these monuments you know laying wreaths and you know bouquets at them so the DPRK people are definitely aware of the long history of you know of cooperation and friendship with the Chinese people and they've they've reiterated in almost every statement about the People's Republic of China saying that you know their you know their ties are one of you know shared blood you know not not like in the brace way but like in the we've like in the comrades in arms kind of way like they've laid down their arms for each other, and I mean, uh, Kim Il Sung fought with the um, the uh, communist rebels in, in Manchuria against you know the Japanese um, occupation there for for many years. I mean, Kim Il Sung um, uh, grew up um, well, not he wasn't like born, but he went to school in uh, Jilin in China's Korean autonomous province, and they have. Um, have uh, Jilin Yuen uh, I think middle school and there's a huge bronze statue of uh, the president Kim Il-sung with you know tons and tons of flowers and you know it's it's beautiful um, but um, especially because there's so many cranes in China there's always been a super close relationship between the peoples I mean you can even even factors talk about how um, along the border with the DPRK and China, there's almost not even a concept of a border because because people have just been coming and going as they please. Authorities that they it's cool. Um, like people go over to visit China for a few months, go visit family, come back to their, you know, their moral lives in the DPRK. Um, people go there to, you know, I, I'm sure you know buy goods, you know, things like that. Um, and I'm sure that's one of the. I mean, obviously, like people. Everybody knows that, like, you know, DPRK, uh, China is, or trade is, like, one of the ways that they can probably most effectively get around um, sanction, any sanctions or restric- or, eh, restrictions. <laughs> um, 
Oh, and obviously, um, like uh, just uh, just recently, um, some high profile DPRK officials visited um, with with Xi Jinping um, to the grave of uh, I I I forget his name, but it was it was Chairman Mao's son on the his grave and a big bust of him is um is uh, still in one of the martyr cemeteries, and it's like a it's like a traditional thing that you go and visit the grave of Mao's son during during some um, visits. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, yeah, you you mentioned one of my favorite pieces of socialist history that I felt was like pretty wholesome um, was during the Korean War the um, the People's um, Liberation Army, the Volunteers. I know they would set up like little theater groups and they would just travel around and like entertain the um, People's Liberation Army and the um, fighters on the Korean side. I did not know and, that. Oh yeah, there's a there's a great book by. Um, are you familiar with William Burchett? I think I've heard of him, but I'm not familiar. Yeah, he he was really cool during the um, Korean War. He was an American communist journalist, and he was in um, the DPRK or and he was um, just writing about the a lot about the negotiations that were going on between um, America, the United States. Do you States know what paper is from? Um, I can't remember what paper. Um, his book is called This Monstrous War, where he talks about a lot of his writings. Um, I'll, I'll have to look up which paper he was involved with, but um, he was one of the few, what he would call like a red journalist, um, like American communist journalist. But um, he talked a lot about these... Um, groups they would travel like um like theater they would just set up like theater shows for like the um troops on the korean side so um yeah i'll definitely send you some information on that i thought that yeah, was i would love cool. that yeah that's really interesting we should definitely link that in the show description if we can find a link to it definitely definitely yeah that's really great it's actually very kind of good to know that they've maintained close relationships um so uh, yeah that's great with china i was wondering um about uh, relations with any other countries, especially I was wondering about Vietnam because you don't really hear a lot about Vietnam DPRK relations. Um, do you know anything about that? Could you elaborate on that a bit? I do. So obviously um, the summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un was held in Hanoi and it wasn't in, I mean, it obviously wasn't an insignificant place to hold. I mean, obviously um, with both both the DPRK and the United States have you know connections with Vietnam now. Uh, both obviously have played. I mean, most people don't know about the DPRK's history in Vietnam, but both have played a significant role in in their struggle. Though uh, are obviously uh, on very different sides. Um, one for uh, Western public government and one for you know, the Vietnamese people. But um, the DPRK. Um, always had a close relationship with the um, Vietnamese people and Kim Il-sung. Um, they not only personally sent, I was thinking of like, I think it was like 2 million uniforms for free, but they also sent um, anti-aircraft teams and they also sent um, fighter pilots. Um, and they also sent a lot of um, construction crews to build um, uh, like underground, like bunkers and underground, I think like, places to store like planes and things like that um because everything was getting bombed so i guess i i don't know i don't know terribly much about about vietnam but i know that they started doing a lot of underground projects to avoid american bombing and, and the dprk was part of the spearheading of that effort because the dprk was really good at you know building tunnels and 
they also sent um like i said they sent they sent 200 pilots and the even uh today in vietnam they have a um a a shrine uh, one, uh in the graves of uh i think like you know tens of uh of dprk pilots who gave their lives you know fighting um uh, in vietnam against the american uh invasion oh, okay very interesting um this is just kind of a very random question, but you mentioned that they were very good at digging tunnels. I know that like during the Korean war, they were like digging into the mountains and like bunkering down in there. Um, yeah. This is random, but how were they doing that? Were they just doing that by hand, like shoveling these out or like a lot of their machinery was like, like uh, it's hard. Um, basically once all of the military targets were gone, you know, they started going after, you know, all, you know, every residential and district of every city town village you know it was any target is a target um and so eventually they started targeting um even just like they would drop bombs on just to, to hit agricultural machinery and you know on construction machinery um to where at the end of the war even for years the dprk uh only had like one construction crane in the entire country um and so yeah, a lot of their a lot of their machinery was just completely destroyed, and a lot of it had to be done through. I'm sure that I mean, obviously, there definitely were machines, I mean, especially from China, but a lot of it had to be just uh, done by you know by hand labor at that time. And also, I forgot to mention uh, about Vietnam. They also the DPRK also took in Vietnamese students uh, in into their universities for free during the war, and they trained you know thousands and thousands of uh, of uh, college graduates that went back to Vietnam to help them. Wow, I did not know about that. I mean, if, I think I think that angle of the solidarity between those two countries has definitely been kind of underplayed, especially even in people who are pro-Vietnam. You see a lot of Western leftists, I think, becoming more uh, positive towards Vietnam in recent years, but um, they don't really tend to see the connection between those two countries. So, so that's actually yeah, really interesting. A lot of people say that, like, oh, the D, like, oh, it was, it was just around the Hanoi summit that these stories started floating around, and it's like they tried to present it as if it was just like, oh, common knowledge. Um, now they're saying the DPRK is going to take Vietnam's model, and before that, for like thirty years, it was oh, they're going to take on China's model, and then for twenty years before that, it was oh, they're just Soviet model write-offs, you know. Um, so yeah they i mean they they definitely they've shown solidarity to all these these socialist countries but they've always i mean no matter what the what the people in the west analysts have to say they've they've really you know stuck to their their own line of things and they're they're a model for their their country and material conditions which is what juche is it's even exactly what Kamil sung said it was it's a creative application of the principles of marxism leninism to the material conditions and history of korea Right. And that's a good point about, um, you know, they are always portrayed as being a puppet of some foreign power. And I don't know if it's just a little projection like on the United States side, because you know how imperialism works. It's like we just want these spheres of influence. And when you talk about the Cold War, a lot of times people are like, oh, the Soviets were just gaining spheres of influence. And like, I don't know, say what you will. But um, there's not a lot of recognition that these are independent movements with their own characteristics. But um one of the things that I wanted to ask you about in particular was um, um, all, all of a sudden, you know, a, a month or two ago, the DPRK was kind of on everybody's mind. Um, you know, it doesn't happen, but very often when something really newsworthy happens or supposedly happens and um, 
obviously everybody knows I'm referring to like the rumors of um, Kim Jong-un's death and you know there's still like rumors going around I, I just looked it up right before this and I believe there's some Japanese media sites that are still saying oh we aren't really sure how his health is he's still acting suspect um, so I'm just curious how you reacted to this whole time what what were you feeling like through that whole moment yeah I've also been watching this reaction I was I am I'm perplexed as to where it's gonna go because like at first I was like wait are they just like I really thought, wow, like, are they going to tell us, like, that the the images, that the, like, the new visits and stuff of Kim Jong-un are just, like, I don't know, like, CGI or edited or, like, well, Kim Jong-un is in a coma. But no, it seems most of the main, most of the mainstream news, at least, has accepted that that's not the case. But, yeah, there are, like, lots of, like, like far-right and nationalists, like, um, especially in Japan and the South that are, like... No, Kim Kim Jong Un still be dead. He gets to be dead, even though like he's holding all these new meetings, talking about things like relevant in the world that like aren't or weren't relevant a month ago. But um, yeah, it's not the first time that we've heard this, and it's just so funny that people keep buying it. Like the first time, I don't remember the specific month or year, but it was. But it was that Kim Jong because he had he had he wasn't I don't know he was out of the spotlight you know quote unquote he wasn't you know pictured in in the national media um for like a few weeks and they said that he had developed um at first it was that he had developed gout and that it then it was that he had died <laughs> um due to a heart attack because he was um addicted to expensive European cheeses and that's where the entire state budget was going um according to these people like it like just the budget is you know kim jong-un's lunch um because that's just that's just the wrong narrative since day one is just haha you know fat you know overweight just you know so funny um in 2020 um i I want to ask you about that specifically um i kind of noticed like the whole like fat shaming aspect of this all of a sudden everybody was like oh he's so fat and like I remember even one, um, there was an article saying that the doctor was so afraid to operate on him because he never operated on an overweight man before and like stuff like this. So, I mean, I'm sure you picked up on that kind of like fat shaming, like aspect of this whole thing as well. Yeah. Um, and part of, part of those stories was, um, or at least a later development are, you know, it's just like with these stories that they, it, one person starts to lie and then everyone else just like adds a little lie onto it and it just gets bigger and bigger. Um, but it was like that the doctor was executed, you know, after because, you know, Kim Jong-un went to a coma and, you know, all this, you know, another one of, you know, the PRK's executions, just daily occurrence, you know, and, um, what was it that you asked me? I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, oh, I was just wondering if you kind of picked up on that whole, like, um, you know, that whole, I just called it like a fat shaming kind of. Attitude, yeah. It's just, but... it's, it's so weird, especially among like people who espouse themselves to be like, again, like, you know, liberal or progressive in, in America. Um, it's, it's the same thing, I guess, as like Donald Trump, where it's, they, fat shaming isn't okay, but it's only, it's okay if like, it's like, it's Donald Trump or, you know, someone else, some other overweight, you know, politician. Um, it's very strange. I don't know. I, 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 it's just at this point, it's just part of the, it's, I don't even think about it anymore. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's it, just so dumb. It, it is like hypocritical. I, I, that's what I kind of picked up too, is like th- the same people who will condemn it all of a sudden, like employ that when it comes to like 
political actors and stuff without much care. Um, yeah, I don't know why these people give a shit about what Kim Jong Un like Kim Jong Un looks like. I think he looks fine. I think it looks very similar to his granddad. His granddad was like a super handsome guy. I don't. Yeah, I don't see what they see. Right. Uh, I had a question, if if that's all right. Um, so I think there seems to be a lot of confusion about how the government of the DPRK functions, um, with people just kind of assuming a very extreme and not based in reality view of it just the entire country is essentially like a monarchy where like Kim Jong-un there's Kim Jong-un he rules everything everybody else just kind of nods along with what he says because they're afraid to do anything uh you know if, if they disagree they'll get shot etc etc um and people say like oh well like the DPRK says it's democratic does that mean it's democratic you hear this like all the time right so i was wondering um so how is the dprk's government set up in like specific terms um and like especially with elections and things like that how are elections conducted yeah um i'm glad you mentioned this because um just recently even i'm sure everyone who follows this stuff will have seen a story like that the media was like they were just head over heels about it for a couple weeks was um Oh, there's a power struggle in the DPRK. Kim Yo Jong, his sister, is taking over, and she's you know now there's a power struggle between her and her brother behind the scenes for for supreme control over the DPRK. So it's just funny, like one minute um, Kim Jong Un is you know he's you can't question him. He, everybody in the entire country is raised from birth to believe this man is a living deity with with supernatural powers that he can kill you just by thinking negatively of you that, you know, he can see you through the sun. Um, but also um, there are these huge power struggles in leadership. You know, uh, they all, everyone's trying to kill Kim Jong-un. Uh, it's just fucking ridiculous how they can go from like, everybody's a, everybody's a robotic automaton hive mind, you know, to, right. um, Oh, the, every, there's everyone's factional. Like everyone's just looking out for themselves. Like nobody gives a shit about any of you know their their country or anything like that. But um, yeah, they there is this perception of this whole this one man dictatorship, and it again, I really feel like it stems from people not really following what the fuck is going on in the DPRK. They're not following all of the government you know meetings. They're not following any of the big events. Like there, people don't know that the DPRK has an elected legislature. They don't know that the Supreme People's Assembly exists. They don't know that there are multiple parties in the DPRK: the Workers' Party, the the Social Democratic Party, and the um, I don't want to butcher the pronunciation, like the Chongu Chondoist Party, which is a um a, a, a religious a religious minority party. Um, and they all have seats at every level of the government from. Uh, national at the supreme people's assembly to the provincial and county and city you know in town people's assemblies that are also elected um yeah and that's right everybody the dprk has more political parties than the united states yeah yeah <laughs> um and they, they always have they always have for their entire history and oh and they also um in their national legislature um people also don't know about oh, oh god i'm going on a tangent here but um people don't know about the koreans in japan and and how um the chongryon uh organization which is the general association of association of korean residents in japan which is supportive for the dprk the dprk affords um i think it's like five 
seats in their national legislature um, to representatives of Koreans in Japan. So they're, they're represented at the table. Um, and that's especially important when in Japan right now, the Abe regime is, um, for instance, just recently, they uh, instituted a free kindergarten and pre-K program um, for everybody except for Koreans. For Koreans, o- only Koreans are exempt from um, getting this uh, education because wow. um, they don't want Koreans um, being educated in their own language, first of all, and they don't want Koreans learning the history of you know their country and being educated in a in a in a fashion that is similar to the fashion in in, in their home country, and so the gov- Japanese government has you know. I think completely cut um, funding to Korean schools so that now um, there used to be like thousands of them. But now there's only a handful um, and they also sanctioned uh, Korean owned businesses so that, um, you know, they can't send, you know, money back home and things like that. Like they could, you know, there's a thriving, you know, pro DPRK Korean community in Japan, but it's, it's, um, it's definitely like gone into, like a, a period of like crisis because of the you know frantic moves of the Japanese imperialists, and uh, okay, okay, tangent over that. Um, where was I? Um, <laughs> Just talking about how the structure is set up. Yes, yes, okay. So um, it ignores um, you know all of the legislatures that they have and all of the elections that they have. You know, I mean, people when you oh, it's so it makes me mad because like whenever the DPRK holds elections, I'll see some bullshit headline like. Oh, Kim Jong Un gets a hundred percent of the vote, but he wasn't on a fucking ballot. Like they didn't. This wasn't. They weren't electing Kim Jong Un to anything. Like, um. Oh, so and, you're saying like the, those elections are more for like the other officials, whereas he wasn't even like. An yeah, they'll have be- like a. They'll have like the elections for the Supreme People's Assembly, and it's like, what they mean is the party that Kim Jong Un leads got got a lot of support. But they'll say, "Oh, Kim Jong Un got a hundred, a hundred percent of the vote," even though it doesn't account. It doesn't. They're not accounting for all the different parties. They're just saying that because. Okay, so <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm all over the place with this. Um, no, you're good. All of the parties are united in in a, in a united front, right? The I, I forget the name. It's like, um, it's like Democratic Front for the Unification of Reunification of the Fatherlands, something, something like that. Um, and it's how all of the parties come together and compromise and govern as, as one. But when they claim that this, this United front is just a sham that they're all just, you know, it's all just a puppet of the, you know, Kim Jong-un and um, that it's just, I, I don't know why they would like, if the, if the DPR, okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. It just makes me so angry. No, um, uh, so, Okay. Moving on, how elections are done. So people always say that, um, oh, I mean, they might hold like a sham election, but like there's only one person on the ballot. And this totally distorts like fundamentally how the DPRK's political system operates. Again, they like they can't afford factionalism in the DPRK. They can't afford like, okay, let's just have like a part like a group of people who want to sell out the entire country to the Americans and make us a puppet government that just like exports our national resources while our people get, you know, fucking slaughtered and oppressed. Um, no. They they took together all of the progressive political movements of the country and united them in one united front that would, you know, make all the decisions. Um 
And so um, the DPRK system naturally builds, tries to build consensus and not like competition and like factionalism. So um, as I understand it, the parties come together uh, in, in whatever locality that this election, like for instance, a seat in the National Assembly, and you know they review like like the prime candidates, like the best people like in that area, and then those decisions have to be discussed and like like ratified like at people's um like like farms, factories, like right in the workplace, people like wherever people can like gather, you know um wherever that be in like a city or a town or a village, and once the people are you know all pretty much all agreed like this this can be our candidate then the vote is just to ratify the decision that decisions that were already made at the people's workplaces directly to ratify that that candidates whether it's that's why it's it's a it's a yes vote or no vote and almost always um the candidate who the people came together and and agreed to will be the candidate that overwhelmingly wins Okay, that's actually very interesting. I didn't really know too much about that, but so it's sort of like a sort of council type, uh, sort of council democracy, like Soviet style, a little bit like Soviet style democracy, where you. I'm sure, have, like, like I, I did a super. That's my basic understanding of it. Um, mm -hmm. I would, I, I'll try to give you some more resources after this, so that um people can have something to to read. Sure, and I've heard that the general structure of the government is sort of like a three branches of government similar somewhat similar to the United States where you have the executive legislature and judiciary is that correct um uh i mean they definitely have yeah they did those all those branches like definitely like exist i don't think that they i don't know if they they work the same way as the american system i'm sure they don't yeah, yeah. hopefully um, they don't <laughs> but yeah i think they they definitely have like courts a legislature and the executive like um uh the executive uh, executive would be like uh the state affairs commission um uh the like the cabinet obviously like they have a cabinet a huge like a big cabinet I don't like there's so many ministers I don't even know um sure. but yeah 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 that's fascinating um I, I never really understood you know why there was you know there's multiple parties in the DPRK I I think that is very interesting but. The way you described it as like being a united front, um, I, I think that's interesting. So what you're saying is like there's multiple parties that are joining in this united front with the single core idea of unifying um, Korea. Is that the idea? Um, yeah. So, um, for instance, with the religious minority party, um, I actually looked into this just yesterday while I was, uh, I was doing stuff for Twitter. And um, Kim Il-sung wrote like an entire section of his, his, his memoirs um, with the Century about the um the chondoists which uh, is a korean a korean folk religion um and a really in a, a relatively progressive one for its time and um uh, basically what chondoism i mean i it could a lot could be said about it but one of the big things is that it emphasizes not like um and a like a paradise in the afterlife but like the emphasis that we need to build an earthly paradise like on here so um right from then it's like super different from like a lot of the like abrahamic like religions and um they were a huge movement during the anti-japanese revolutionary struggle um and although that though they were like the upper 
echelons of like their movement were like obviously like as with most most movements during that time like uh some bourgeois and like you know some 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 traders like they the Kim Il-sung and his guerrillas like realized that a lot like pretty much the entire grassroots of their their movement were just like peasants like poor peasants and um so yeah eventually they were brought into the united front um he saw them as like um as a, again as like a progressive like patriotic force like as um they were involved in the march 1st uprising um which happened in 1919 i think um it was a huge uh huge uprising against you know the japanese that was uh violently quelled of course but um yeah a, a lot of these like organizations that 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 are now part of the united front have a huge long history in korea like over over 100 years now um of being involved in these these patriotic you know uh struggles for not only um the liberation of the country but now um for the reunification of the country and a lot of the uh religious movement in the north is you know um focused around you know achieving reunification with the south and um for instance just last year one of the the dprk's i think it's like council of religionists um they sent like a like a, a Merry Christmas message to like a South, like a bunch of South Korean churches, like mega churches in the South. And um, like, you could see like Christmas trees in the DPRK churches and stuff like it was, it was really cool, but yeah. So um, far from like religion being like seen as like, like a, a, a terrible thing or like that you're a bad person if you're religion, like some of the, like Kim Il-sung in his book goes in detail about all of like the reverends and preachers and stuff that like, helped him during the the revolutionary struggle um so i mean that's just an example of one of the uh, the forces um in the in the united front that they created and i mean it's not as big as it used to be like i think at back in the 40s they had like millions and millions like of members but like now it's it's uh it's much smaller um uh, I, I could i could talk forever about that but yeah <laughs> that's really interesting i mean i think a lot of leftists also are kind of unaware of the um revolutionary power that religion can have if it's used in the right way um in the west we tend to only see it as a reactionary thing but i mean if you look around the world like there's like uh liberation theology in south america there's like like you said the chungdoist party um it's religion is what you make of it it's a product of the conditions around it so it can be it can be a progressive force as well yeah, that is all very fascinating. I've always wondered about about that, but that was a great explanation. Um, yeah, so I think we got like uh, like five more minutes or so here, but um, I just wanted to okay. get your. Oh wow, uh, we're already done. Oh my god, I thought we were gonna get through like all yeah, the questions, and I was gonna it was gonna be like twenty minutes. Holy crap! I did not see it's been an hour. <laughs> That's right. what I expected too, but this this went pretty good. I thought. Well, if you, um, obviously, if you ever want to come back on and sure, uh, sure, more things, we'd yeah. love to have you on again. I would um, love that. I did have one question. So, with your um, pick two solidarity alliance, but also just for any leftists who are interested in learning about the DPRK or getting involved in the reunification movement or just uh, peace on the Korean Peninsula, um, what are some good resources that uh, people who are interested can go to to learn more about the DPRK? And what can American and Western uh, people on the left do to kind of support that that effort um so obviously like first and foremost like people need to like seek out and listen to like korean voices on this issue 
um like i would personally like recommend um their organizations like no do doll like n-o-d-u-t-d-o-l um that are organization of korean diaspora that are organizing for um not only justice at home and in korea but justice here in the united states um um uh there are, i mean you could look up plenty of other you know korean progressives that are struggling for unification there's like korean peace now um there i mean there's some very big well-known ones like women cross dmz um i would also like i would strongly recommend like just the dprk's own sources like you should check them out um i do we do have them at my website but you can also just go directly like like kcna.kcna.kp um like uh there's i'll I'll make sure to like there's a, a really good link of um the DPRK has like a web portal with all of their sites listed. So I think that would be super useful to your audience. Cause there's like so much good shit in there. Um, Absolutely. Could, um, yeah, there's like stuff from like tourism to it. like a site just of like literature. It's like crazy good. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Just um, send us that link if you can find it and absolutely. We'll, we'll absolutely post in the description for everyone to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for being on this. I thought this was really informative. And yeah, I'll just um, echo that. Definitely check out Peck2 Solidarity Alliance. I was scrolling through and um, I I'm definitely excited to check out the documentaries. Um, there's not that many documentaries regarding Korea on YouTube that I, I thought were like very great. So I'm, I'm excited to dive into that. But, I did um, see one that was like, um, uh, what was it called? It, it was, um, oh, man. Oh, there's uh there's one that's uh that I would really recommend. It's called um Loyal Citizens of Pyongyang and Seoul. That's oh one. my god. It's it's literally the best. Uh, I recommend that all the time. It's like a, even if you're just starting out learning about this, watch that documentary. It will change like how you see these issues and just it will expose so much stuff that you've never even heard of. I learned so much from it. I pull clips from it all the time. Like it's so good. I I know the director. He's he's a Korean American. He's a great guy. Total that's, recommendation. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Um. There's also a really good YouTube video that's also really funny, but also informative. It's called um something like we went to North Korea to get a haircut. Yeah, it's like the haircut. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that video. one was also I thought I thought really funny, really well done. Yeah, that is such a ridiculous um claim. I mean, they said um. It, uh, not only did they the media claim that these i mean i could i'm sorry i'll look at this brief the media claimed that like not only did like were kim jong-un's haircut like mandatory for every citizen but then they also then later claimed that they banned kim jong-un haircut and if you get kim jong-un's haircut you get you're executed i mean <laughs> just ridiculous yeah they showed like a list of like 10 different haircuts but really yeah. it's just like you go recommendations yeah yeah well, it's like, like oh i'll have the number like, seven or something yeah it's one of the biggest yeah. lies this whole like it, it's part of where the whole like oh dprk hates gay people shit comes from is like this this um this lie about oh this you have to maintain the socialist lifestyle and big a big part of that is just like the way you look and they'll post these pictures of like the 12 state sanctioned haircuts of the dprk but like then you'll just see like people in the street with like you know not almost none of them have the, any of those hairdos and you know but yeah. yeah right it's pretty ridiculous um it's, it's the kind of thing that if you just think about it for like 10 seconds just independently you're like that doesn't sound right but yeah people don't do that they just kind of just accept it because you know dprk is crazy they're just insane people exactly exactly yeah. Yeah. that definitely makes the challenge a lot a lot like harder because it's like 
for some people it's like oh you can how, how do you not see this i mean you can really just look at it for two seconds but i mean i mean i'm kind of simplifying it but you you get what i'm saying but um there's this whole attitude of like oh it has to be a conspiracy there's something else going on here so it, it, it's very hard to fight against but it's just like this whole idea of what we'll is attack this place from all fronts like ideologically propaganda so you can't really defend yourself yourself the conspiracies go everywhere i mean i've seen even people that claim that like kim jong-un is this is all all of this is just theater he's working with uh donald trump to ensure his re-election campaign he's working with putin and the russian you know bots and shit right. like that like it's just all sides is just when it comes to the dprk just insanity and just i remember with the uh the the trump rally that was recently held where i think a bunch of like k-pop stars convinced their fans to like reserve a bunch of tickets i don't know if you heard about that but they basically reserved like a million tickets for a trump rally but then nobody showed up but then one u.s congresswoman was like uh like the the the, the democrats are working with north korean k-pop talked about this on twitter yes he said <laughs> yeah he said that i i said that like oh yeah k-pop all K-pop stands are take their orders directly from Pyongyang. Oh yeah, but I've I've heard uh, the DPRK has its own version of K-pop, correct? Oh yeah, I oh god, I, I it's literally my like probably like my favorite genre of music now. Oh, it's really? it's like it's synthesize oh like it's like synthesize classical music with with modern day K-pop and like some rock and like also like some like it's it, they bring in like jazz and stuff like all the time like. It is so good. And, and the best part about it, the thing that I like about it is that it has really good messaging. It has like revolutionary messages. Like some of their songs are, um, one of their songs is, uh, even in death, let's, let's keep our revolutionary beliefs. Like, I love that. Like, I love music with the, with the good, like militant message. Look up, if yeah. you're interested, look up like Moran Bong, M-O-R-A-N-B-O-N-G. They're the best, like they're the ones everyone knows. They're, like, I think most people have probably, if they've, if they've, been in, ever heard like deep cracky music it's either a military march or moran bong <laughs> so yeah definitely i love that band and pachumbo as well yeah I, I've been really getting yeah. into like north korean music like you said it's so equally radical while super wholesome at the same time exactly yeah it's, it's all it's usually very uplifting like, it's very powerful yeah, yeah they they tend to combine tradition like traditional korean music yes, with yeah the modern flair so, so cool i love cool. it i love it. it's like it's like the best way they could keep like a lot of their like musical traditions alive i think it's awesome yeah i mean also south korean k-pop artists are basically like slaves uh there's a really good video about how horrible that industry is i'm sure the dprk artists are treated much more uh reverentially i think i've probably seen the same video as you it, yeah yeah well oh yeah Definitely a great discussion here. I appreciate it so much once again. Um, but um, yeah, I'll leave it up to you, Tactical Sport. Do you want to shout out our patrons before we get out of here? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again to Comrade Natalie for coming on to our show. We really appreciate it. And um, hopefully we can have you on again soon um, to talk more about this, because I think this is just something that cannot be uh, talked about enough. It's definitely not discussed. So thanks again for coming on. Awesome. So yeah, this episode was brought to you by uh, our patrons on Patreon who have contributed to keeping the show going and paying off some of the costs of running an episode like this, which are definitely not um, not negligible. Um, so thank you so much to Rasmus Shamel, 
I hope I'm pronouncing that right for supporting uh, the episode and uh, all that we do. We have a Discord server, which will definitely invite you to Comrade Natalie if you're interested in uh, coming on to it. Um, so we can probably do that afterwards. But yeah, um, contributing to our Patreon will get you access to the Iron Curtain Discord server. We talk about current events. We talk about um, different politics, theory. We have you know people talking and debating each other. It's a good time sharing memes. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, it's a great community to come on to. So please check us out on uh, the Iron Curtain patreon page uh, which we'll have in the show description so thank you so much comrades for coming on and um yeah solidarity everybody all right peace